Welcome to Crossroads, the infrastructure podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Andrew Vitelli, a senior reporter for InfraLogic. Now, we have a really great guest today, Ruben Munger. He is the founder of Vision Ridge Partners and also a managing partner at the firm, which he founded in 2008. Uh, Vision Ridge, which is headquartered in Boulder, Colorado, focuses on renewable energy and other sustainability-linked investments. Ruben, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's uh, great to be here. So this is really an interesting time in the U.S. renewable energy sector. I've talked to Ruben somewhat frequently about the sector, and I, and I can't wait to dive into this conversation. But before we do, can you give us or can you give your audience a little bit of background about Vision Ridge Partners and where your focus is? Absolutely. Vision Ridge is uh, you know, a, a sustainable investment firm. We're focused predominantly on the impacts of climate change and, and finding ways to both mitigate and address uh, that transition. We've been managing capital for institutional investors starting in uh, 2014 in uh, energy, transportation, and agriculture, uh, with a focus really on on when and how this shift that's fundamentally happening to real assets and infrastructure is taking place. So to us, you can gain the same kind of principal protection uh, as traditional real assets, but over time, you know, all things in this category must become sustainable. And being at the vanguard of that transition means that you're able to you know, earn really attractive returns on a, on a risk-adjusted basis. We raised a, a first fund in, in 2014 of just over $400 million. And at this point, uh, manage in excess of $3 billion in a private equity structure. Uh, we've found increasing scale and opportunity as the economics of the underlying uh, areas that we invest in have consistently improved, and uh, the world has been catching up with the importance of of energy transition uh, and how you know a lower carbon economy can be uh, more interesting, more more valuable, less volatile, and and achieve sort of better better outcomes. Um, and so we've been fortunate to grow across the last. Uh, eight to ten years and build a, a team that's quite experienced in our in our sectors and in our domains. So within the energy space, what sectors would you invest in? Uh, what sectors are you most focused on? Within energy, we've particularly been thinking about how traditional assets can support and accelerate the transition. Uh, so our recent investment uh, in Earthrise Energy uh, has purchased a series of natural gas peakers in the state of Illinois and, and expanding and using those to create a uh, more renewable and lower carbon uh, production profile for customers. So as an example, at this moment in time, that business has 1.7 gigawatts of, of thermal assets, but has you know, a one and a half gigawatt uh, renewable development pro port portfolio in that similar geographies. We're also pretty focused on how the power grid can support the emergence of electric vehicles. Um, and so we have a, a, an investment in a company called Terawatt Infrastructure. And Terawatt is you know, buying and developing the real estate that's necessary to support fleet electrification across the country. Um, so in order to transition the distribution grid uh, in such a way that you can support this significant increase in load, uh, you need the right kind of technology and knowledge of, of infrastructure to build that and, and develop. And so those are examples of the kinds of transitions that we're particularly focused on within within energy and power. All right. Well, definitely a lot of interesting spaces that you guys are covering. Now, you started, you uh, helped found this firm 
about 15 years ago. What was your background coming into this? So I was uh, fortunate enough to be a partner at the Baupost Group. Um, you know, that's a, a global value hedge fund uh, that I joined when we had about a billion dollars in assets. And, and by the time I left, the firm had grown to 12 billion. And so what, what we really focused on was how to understand and price risk and understand, you know, sort of a similar framework that we've carried through to Vision Ridge, which is, you know, on a risk adjusted basis, if you're thoughtful and, and avoid loss of principle, over time, you can create real returns and value to investors. And so that kind of generalist opportunist framework has been really helpful in bringing thoughtful structuring to, to what we do, where, you know, we work hard to find the right way to, to find an innovative management team and partner with them in a way that's a, a way for them to win and a way for our, us and our clients to win while creating really positive climate outcomes. And now, Ruben, what made you want to launch a new firm? What made you want to... Uh want to launch Vision Ridge rather than kind of either staying put or, or joining another established firm? So, you know, when we launched Vision Ridge, the idea of investing in sustainable real assets was, you know, a rather niche concept at best. And so even for our first fund, people felt like uh, what we were doing must be concessionary. And our strong conviction was that it is actually the opposite, where being committed and to the learning and knowledge that's necessary to have confidence in making investments in this category gives you an opportunity to outperform and, and to lead the beginning of specialization. And that was really what drove me to, to, to start the firm. Um, you know, Baupost is a fantastic platform, but this kind of work uh, isn't what, what Baupost is known for, right? We, uh, we were a very opportunistic uh, hedge fund, whereas to do the work that Vision Ridge does, you're often you know leaning in side by side with a management team, innovating around how a market is going to be structured. Uh, we used to own um, you know a company called Key Capture Energy, where we were building utility scale energy storage, and you know our projects were some of the first projects. And while we were able to mitigate risk with you know our our EPC and by using certain batteries. There just weren't that many projects you could look to as this is how it's done. So we manage technical risk and technology risk and market risk. But at the end of the day, you just have to roll up your sleeves and do it side by side with your management teams. And that's really, you know, fun, exciting and creates, you know, a great pie for everyone to, to split up over time. And, and that needed coming to the market with a, a specific dedicated firm who's really focused on this. We're not uh, thinking about oil and gas in the background other than in how it it impacts what we do, uh, right? We're not a Johnny come lately to this topic. And so it's by being deeply embedded in it that we found the pathway to have, have the most value. Well, it's certainly been a very interesting and eventful 15 years for the renewable energy space, and perhaps even more so for the last six to eight months since the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which really had a lot of incentives for renewable energy, a lot of incentives and initiatives that the renewable energy sector has been asking for, been seeking for a long time. And, and I think this year, we've talked a lot uh, for frequent listeners of this podcast, we've talked a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act since it passed. And I'm curious for your take, how big an impact is it having on the industry so far? How's it changing investing in renewables here, uh, what, six to eight months after its passage? Well, you, you opened by talking about you know the change over 15 years, and I think one of the, the, the biggest points to make, first and foremost, is the old act that was previously the biggest thing that happened to renewables in 2008 was tiny relative and the costs of what things 
uh, were was also much, much higher. So $1 of, of kind of subsidy and tax or otherwise out of the Inf Inflation Reduction Act has, you know, five times as much leverage as what existed in the, in the Recovery Act. And so this scope and scale of what's going on is truly unique. And we see it playing out in both sort of existing strong sectors and creating real acceleration in some of the more nascent ones. And so, you know, you can see activity in solar and wind is picking up uh, a ton more attention in in hydrogen and, and carbon capture, uh, and then more velocity in electric vehicles, just using three different examples where they all had attractive subsidies attached to the IRA. And I guess I, I left out a fourth one where there's been a ton of activity in the domestic manufacturing sector. And that domestic activity is tied to both um, renewable power, so a lot of things around the solar supply chain, and then also electric vehicles and, and effectively the battery and mineral supply chain all the way through vehicle manufacturing. And so you've seen this comprehensive industrial policy come into play across the country, and you're seeing this mixture of announcements that have been truly remarkable. What's challenging is so much of it is still sitting in the announcement phase. And so people are making those risk decisions and capital decisions against a set of other things going on in the background. And so that acceleration of what's actually happening on the ground has a bit of a lag from you know, a, a bill that uh, people weren't sure was going to get done. Right, the, the, the Build Back Better lived in limbo for a very, very long time. And, and the majority of people had sort of thrown in the towel on it until, you know, Senator Manchin, Senator Schumer, and, and the president came through with the Inflation Reduction Act. And so that really kick-started activities coupled with a series of other things changing. You know, if you take, say, the solar supply chain where uh, there's been a lot of disruption, first from COVID, then from tariffs, um, you know, and, and, and other things such that there just was a challenge in getting that uh, loosened up. And now, you know, year on year, December volumes were up a third over the year before. And that's only going to accelerate into these next couple of years as sort of these multiple pieces all unclog and people try to react to, you know, just giant amounts of, of opportunity, subsidy and flexibility. And so some of some of the opportunity is also not just in the gross dollars, but it's in things like making tax credits transferable. And so it's simplifying the financial transactions and financial opportunities that were otherwise, you know, sort of a boon to the large banks, but were, you know, the bane of many project uh, developers and ultimate capital owners um, existence. And so the IRA was really thoughtful and it also can't live independently, right? The CHIPS Act and the infrastructure bill also were very powerful. So if we live in, in say, uh, you know, we have an electric school bus business, there is grant money flowing through the EPA from the infrastructure bill. There are then tax subsidies uh, from the IRA, and you need to be thoughtful on how you can put those things together to deliver a better product to, to school children. You end, end up with a good financial proposition. You end up with a good clean air proposition. You end up with a good driver proposition where you have a quieter school bus. Putting those things all together is part of what's come through in the last you know, 18 months of legislation, and now all of us are just scrambling to put in place the things to, to get it done. Uh, and it's really industry-wide. So in the first few months after the Inflation Reduction Act, it did seem like everybody was kind of going back to going to their notebooks and making sense of everything in the act, how to best take advantage of it, uh, and waiting for further legal guidance in some cases. We've definitely started to see deals, though, this year that are that are tapping into the act. For example, last last month we wrote about a 
battery storage deal that took advantage of the IRA's uh, ITC for standalone battery storage. So we're, we are starting to see what are clearly IRA-inspired deals. I mean, to what degree do you think uh, the the act the act's force is being felt, and to what degree do you think the industry is still in this kind of making sense uh, stage? I think the majority is still in the. They're out of making sense. They're just waiting for it to be clear enough to transact. And so, you know, that Treasury guidance on various tax incentives remains important for things like uh, community adders. You need to be sure you have them uh, and it's not worth transacting until you have a little bit more clarity so you can get you know, you can get paid full value for those if, if you're someone developing a project, as an example. And so there are a few of these things that are just waiting for a little bit more clarity. And over the next couple of months, the you know, I think the floodgates will really open up that that early energy storage ITC transaction, you know, got to jump on things. But um, the scope and scale of what can happen you know, remains open in some areas. So. You know, I gave one example there. Transferability remains open for a little bit more cl- clarification. Uh, you're looking at, you know, what is green hydrogen, what isn't green hydrogen, and and some of those definitions are really important. And so, people are building the projects and they're working their processes, but you're not going to see transactions close until there's a tiny bit more clarity from from the various, you know, uh, agencies and and other key actors to to have that certainty that lets you commit capital. Well, that'll be interesting to see over the next several months how quickly this uh, the the deals from this legislation are able to ramp up. Now, you as you alluded to, it hasn't all been uh, happy news for the renewable industry over over certainly the past couple of years. Supply chain issues really came to the forefront in the industry, I'd say, in late 2021. But they they still remain with us. They still remain an issue to a lot of the people I'm speaking to on a regular basis. On top of that, you have the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which is making it even tougher for uh, for certain for certain developers to get the supplies they need. Some are getting held up in customs. Then you have the threat of tariffs on imports from several Southeast Asian companies. President Biden put a moratorium on that uh, last year that runs through twenty through uh, I think June of twenty twenty four. But as firms are planning ahead in their supply chains, that's still that's still something I have to look at. How impactful have some of these headwinds been? And I, I mean, to what degree do you think the issue has been resolved, or is it still very much front of mind for anyone trying to put a, pro- a project together? So I think the the supply chain has been particularly challenging. It's cha- you know the the certainty of delivery has changed, the cost of delivery has changed, the lead time requirements have have extended, and who a potential supplier. Can be has changed. Uh, you 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 almost let, you know not to, not to say that your list wasn't comprehensive, but there's also this transition towards an American sourced supply chain. And so, is it worth waiting for something that's bankable and manufactured here and getting the benefits of of that when you think about the those pieces? So, for a developer, you're working through a set of choices around certainty, timing, cost, etc. And how do you layer in multiple pathways given some of those uncertainties. So you've seen, you know, a flight to a series of manufacturers where, you know, the phone is just ringing off the hook for them, uh, while other manufacturers, I think, are pivoting, you know, and aren't, you know, aren't going to be suppliers into the United States, and they have to look to other parts of the global market. And I think it's important to note that, that you know, solar panels are a global market. So, you, you know, not every country has the same restrictions that we do, but 
this transition of where can you source, what's bankable, how long do you want to risk you know, something that is a little bit newer versus going to an old standby when, when a portion of those old standbys have fallen out of, out of kind of suppliers to, from whom you can purchase. And so it's just a massively more complicated piece uh, coupled with an expansion of uh, you know, how much people are trying to build. And so you, know, you almost dovetail into a, a challenge from the capital side where timelines have extended. So you need to put deposits down sooner uh, and yet, the capital availability for those deposits, uh, you know, to to secure modules, as an example, is more limited, given just the scope and scale of how much is going on in the capital markets. And so, that supply side of the conversation has been, you know, really taxing. You know, we we I went to see, uh, you know, the CEO of a relatively large renewable operator uh, who's also has a development portfolio, and historically, you know, I think supply was something he probably spent three to five percent of his time on and it did evolve to you know fifty percent of his time. And that's the kind of importance that it becomes where if you need to deliver a project, you need to make sure you can get all of your things. And some of those pieces are are mitigating and alle- you know getting clearer now, but it's been quite an issue. You know, the other piece you didn't get into yet is is around you know interest rates and cost of capital and, and we can kind of keep going there. But that's that's the other big change over the last you know, 18 months from from where the industry was uh, previously. Yeah, of course, and that's another good point. Another uh, another topic that I do want to discuss. I mean, it seems like there's been a low interest rate environment uh, prior to you know prior to 18 months or so ago for for a long time, probably about as long as Vision Ridge uh, since its founding. And now all of a sudden, you see higher interest rates. You see uh, rapid inflation. And a little bit less predictability around costs. How has that impacted the industry? And from your view, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to date myself, but I do remember, you know, investing in a world with five percent, you know, treasury rates, and and it is a different environment. And for you know this industry and and the renewables industry, what you're really doing is you're making a significant capital commitment up front, which is you know in some ways financing that capital is your one of your largest costs. And what you don't have relative to traditional you know thermal power generation, as an example, is the same kind of you know input costs as you go. And so rising cost of capital means rising required cost of power, as well as just real changes and uncertainty. So you've had two different things happen. One, the base rate goes up, and then to the extent there's volatility in understanding where your your cost of capital is going to land, it's harder to have as much confidence on where a project is going to pencil. And I think you have you know, a whole world and a whole industry that isn't fully prepared to to live in that framework where uh, you have you know inflationary impacts on power prices. Right, power prices have been declining on the back of lower renewables for a long time, and so where is power going to be is sort of more uncertain and dynamic than it had been. Where are your panel costs going to be because of inflation? And then where is your financing going to be? Uh, and you've now seen people have to think about or retrade a, a PPA or say, look, this project's no longer viable. I thought I would be able to fund it with you know, 3 or 4% debt, and now it's 6 and and the math no longer works. Uh, so those rising interest rates have, have sort of changed the fundamental, you know, LCOE of some of these projects, some of these opportunities, and it's mitigated a bit by by the IRA and and, and some increased subsidy, but it is a real challenge. Uh, and then that that showed up pretty quickly into the system. What was a little bit slower is how 
a higher rate environment and tighter capital availability could manifest itself into this sector, where if you're looking across multiple sectors, you know, venture capital lost access to the to the sort of loose capital environment first, and then growth equity lost access to that capital. And you saw, you know, growth stocks trade incredibly badly last year. Well, that capital availability and that higher kind of burden just on is there capital available um, was delayed into this sector as the as the sort of euphoria of the IRA passing had people pretty excited in the back half of last year. And we're starting to see now that there are so many interesting projects and so many opportunities. And while plenty of capital, there's not enough to address what needs to be done. And so people are increasing their required rates of return. And so, you know, deals that management teams thought were going to price one way uh, have come back around six to nine months later because, you know, the the, the world wasn't there and they're much more willing to take a, a different return profile. So you're really seeing that that shift in the market where uh, there is, you know, capital scarcity and, 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 you know, capital that's willing to invest and understand the challenge is, is very valuable. So it seems like the last few years, uh, the conventional wisdom has been that there's a lot of capital chasing any project that's out there. There's a lot of new investors who want to get into the renewable sector partic- uh, in particular. And there's been a lot of infrastructure funds that have been raising capital like never before. And any desirable deal that came onto the market, you'd have a lot of firms chasing it. It sounds like that, like in your view, that's no longer the case. So as an investor, how do you adjust to that? And how do you, uh, how do you find the right opportunity? I think that's a, a fascinating and important question. For us, we spent a lot of time looking for what can be a platform that an infrastructure investor is going to want to buy from us in a few years. So we do a lot of the hard work of of going from you know one or two projects to build into a portfolio and and building effectively that capital deployment engine that as people understand a category they're then able to deploy you know one or 2 billion dollars of of construction capital into a known product while we've spent you know the years doing the first you know 2 to 400 million dollars of capital into that that platform. And so what what we need to do then is look forward and and for us two things have happened. One, I think the infrastructure, you know, that sort of more core plus infrastructure investor is seeing more deal flow that they like. And so they had been reaching down into risks that they weren't necessarily certain they wanted to be taking. Um, and now I think they have more of an opportunity to live in their more natural spot uh, as a buyer of of projects and and really you know, wait for things to be at the risk level that they prefer. And at the same time, venture capitalists had been coming in and funding development teams on the hope that they could bridge to that low-cost uh, infrastructure capital. And so for us, we like to sit in the middle of that and and solve how you really create that that business, whether it's, uh, you know, electrifying school bus platforms or deploying utility-scale batteries or uh, putting together, you know, the right fleet real estate EV charging business. Um, or you know, buying thermal assets and and working to expand into a an integrated IPP with renewables. Like those niche sectors, I think will become mainstream over time. And what we do is we just try to sit and look at you know an increasing universe of all the things that attach to the IRA, for example, that three to five years from now will be really at 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 sort of recurring deployment. And so, how do we back the right teams and build a set of assets? that are not just operating assets that we've built, but then a pipeline from there that builds off of the expertise that we've built arm in arm with our management teams to really 
deliver the next leg for that infrastructure investor. So that's, you know, to us, our, our niche has reopened a little bit where things were getting a little bit harder. And now it feels much more like the, you know, the 2012 to 2016 window where you really had more space to, to come to understand things and, and differentiate yourself with teams as, as the right person to partner with as they wanted to grow or transition their, their existence from a, you know, a, a you know, a, a small scale opportunity to something that's really big and can be scaled, you know, countrywide or, or what have you. Well, it's interesting. Thank you. Thank you for that, Ruben. And it's been a great discussion. It seems like we're all out of time, but thank you so much, Ruben, for joining us today. Andrew, it's always great to talk to you. I appreciate all your questions and interest. And thank you for tuning in to Crossroads, the infrastructure podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating so that others can find our podcast. Until next time, this has been Crossroads. Crossroads.